Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so I am very excited to say that this week on the podcast, I am once again joined by Nico Malali, who is back on here to talk about the continuation of his Frameworks racing project and his self-designed World Cup downhill race bike. Just about a year ago, Nico and I sat down to talk about the first two prototypes of the bike that he tested, a high pivot design and one with a more conventional layout. And after a whole year of him racing and refining and testing the bikes, we're back to talk about where he wound up with all that and the mid-pivot, pretty unconventional bike that he has wound up with. And there's a lot more going on than just the reconfiguration of the pivot height because Nico's been experimenting with a carbon fiber rear triangle, working on a steel front end, and has a lot of really interesting stuff to say about the process of refining the design of a bike and all of the stuff that goes into getting something polished and really fully dialed in rather than just pretty close. It's a fun conversation. I think you're going to learn a lot, and I certainly enjoyed it. But before we get into that, I do want to take a quick moment to encourage you to check out our Blister Plus Spot membership, which among all of the great Blister member benefits that we've already talked about a lot on here, including the ability to drop me a line and get a recommendation on your next bike purchase or gear upgrade or suspension setup or whatever else you need help with. It also lets you get $25,000 of zero deductible injury coverage if you hurt yourself on your bike or skis or snowboarding or running or any number of a pretty lengthy list of outdoor activities that are included in the link at the show notes. So check that out and save yourself a whole lot of money next time you get hurt with Blister Plus Spot. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Nico Mullally. Well, Nico, great to sit down and chat again, and just good to have you on, as always. How are you doing, and where are you this morning? Yeah, thanks again for having me. I'm at home. I'm in Pisgah Forest, North Carolina, doing great. Middle of the off-season. We have a really long off-season this year for World Cup racing, and um yeah, things are going good. I think a lot has happened since the last time we talked, so it should be an exciting conversation. Yeah, for sure. And when we last spoke, just about exactly a year ago, you had fairly recently launched Frameworks Racing and announced the first pair of frames that you were testing out. You had the high and low pivot versions of the bike, and we did a pretty deep dive into what you were doing with those and the thinking behind the two variants. Uh, so people should probably check that episode out if they've not heard it already before this one. It's kind of going to be a continuation to that and what you've done bike development-wise and everything else in the year since. But to kind of start it off, um, after we spoke last year, you spent a bunch of the kind of early season testing the high and low pivot versions of the bike and kind of curious to hear just a bit about what you learned from a being the two against each other and what you took away from that first pair of bikes. Yeah, that was a really fun opportunity to try the two designs with as few variables as possible. I think a lot of times when you ride just a general high pivot bike or a general standard pivot height bike, there could be a lot of 
differences other than the pivot height and axle path. So I tried to isolate that as much as I could, knowing what I knew then, um, to, to get a feel for how the high pivot reacted compared to the low pivot. And I wouldn't say that the, the feelings are anything too out of the ordinary from what people might expect. Like the low pivot height bike felt like it was more efficient. It turned, it was easier to turn. Like I could feel like I was generating more speed out of corners and it was more nimble. And then the high pivot bike was more controlled and in rough stuff. Like the harder you pushed it, it would seem to be more settled in that situation. Um, and I, I, I'll, I'll, to be honest, like the two bikes weren't drastically different. Um, it would be cool now to go back and try something more extreme. But when I designed those two bikes, I took what I liked from test riding other production bikes. Um, from the high pivot side, I, I rode a common saw before and I thought that it was too high for, to feel like a, a good race bike to me. And the Trek session was more in that realm, but there was still some things that I didn't love about it. And then on the low pivot, I really liked the previous version of the session. So I kind of tried to get in there and, and test, like I said, with as few variables as possible. And the, the high pivot bike was kind of as low as the high pivot would be to fit an either pulley above the chain ring. And then the, the low pivot height bike was as high as you would want the pivot to be without, with having a reasonable amount of pedal kick for a bike without an either pulley. And riding the two, they, they weren't drastically different because of that. And because of that isolation of only one variable. And kind of what I came down to was that the high pivot bike wasn't an advantage enough to justify the complication with using the either pulley. And I could get something that was 99% as good in that aspect without the high pivot and the either pulley and use the O chain to take care of the pedal kickback. And so I ended up going with kind of a mid pivot height that doesn't have an either pulley. It kind of sits more towards some of the newer mid pivot bikes that are coming out like the new Trek session. But instead of being a few mil higher and requiring an either pulley, I went a few mil lower and didn't use one, which just gave me less gadgets on the bike and less complication. And I don't know, I'm, I'm a big fan of simplicity, um, but balancing that with performance, which is a tough thing to do sometimes. But with racing, like the criteria is beautifully simple. If it's not faster, it's not going on the bike. I'm not trying to market something by being different or follow a trend. And I found that with the recent development of the O-Chain, I could get a lot of the benefits of getting rid of pedal kickback with an either pulley without the complication of the either pulley. And I guess it comes down to a question of what's more complicated, an O-Chain or running an either pulley system. And I just found that I could get all the benefits of a standard pivot height bike and go in the direction of these mid pivot bikes with only paying the penalty of a lack of engagement in your pedal stroke and a little bit of weight down there, which to me was not a concern. So that's the bike that I ended up with after the initial test and, um, and kind of just refined that throughout the season. I didn't change my kinematic points 
or geometry. Once I landed on that, it was down to the not so fun part of the details with construction, chassis flex, um, all the stuff that I didn't expect to be as hard as it was. Um, develop, designing the first bike, it was like exciting to make big changes, the, the, t- the two low pivot and the high pivot. And then the, the one that I raced at the first world cup, like each one we were making like pivot location changes and, um, geometry changes to get the chainstay length, what I wanted between the two axle paths at SAG. So there was like real hard numbers that were being changed. Whereas when you get into like construction and tube thicknesses and gussets, it's like almost a little bit of black magic. That's hard to quantify. I think probably some smart people with some nice computer software could get close, but in the real world, it's hard to define where all these forces are coming from. Cause like when you're riding down a trail, it's coming from all directions at all times. So it was a lot of trial and error for me, the way that I went about it. And, um, I, I was honestly having a blast the whole time. There was some times where there was a bit of a headache because the race dates don't change. Like if you're developing something, if it's sometimes things get delayed or they take longer, that's natural with the development of any product. But when you're developing it for racing, like I'm sure big motorsports teams deal with the same thing. It's like the race is on Saturday, whether your part's ready or not. So we got to go and we got to be ready to compete. And that deadline really pushed us along and, and elevated the development of my bike. But at times it was, um, it was a lot of pressure, but luckily it was, it was on me. I was the one riding it. I would felt worse if I was like putting somebody else in the position to have to ride the bike. I was, um, happy to take on the challenge. And, um, in the end, it got me to where I am now, which is a lot more knowledge than I had last year about bike development, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Good to hear things moving forward. And some of that stuff that you just talked about, about kind of the finer refinements of tube thickness, and we'll get into a bunch more of that in a little bit here, but it's kind of something we've heard from bike designers a lot of times. It's like the first, what seems like 90% of the design work takes way less than 90% of the time. And it's those last little refinements that just sort of death by a thousand cuts to get the final polish on something. And that always ends up taking forever. But I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the sort of thinking behind the mid pivot layout and what you've said about basically taking some complexity out of the frame and then essentially making a bike that's designed specifically to run an O-chain to deal with the fact that it does have a bunch of pedal kickback makes pretty good sense. And like on the flip side, you can understand also why we're not at least yet really seeing production bikes designed that way because the O-chain is kind of a newer thing and a little niche and like isn't necessarily sort of the standard way of going about that yet. But in particular, I'm sort of curious about what the pedaling characteristics are like, because I would imagine that it's got an extremely high amount of anti-squat given that pivot placement. And so like having, accepting some more pedal kickback and just having an O-chain to handle that very much checks out, but what's the pedaling like? Yeah. Um, I guess not to, not to like be dismissive about the pedaling qualities of the bike in a downhill race. There's not 
that many pedal strokes that you take. So it wasn't a huge concern of mine. For sure, having higher anti-squat numbers, like with, um, I mean, depending on what center of gravity you choose, I was around in reality, 150% anti-squat. Um, and a lot of that was chain tension induced anti-squat that I wouldn't choose if I had to pick the anti-squat that I wanted to ride on a trail bike, of course, but with a downhill bike, you might take 20 pedal strokes in a race run. And it doesn't equate to a ton of, um, advantage for your, your time in the race. So it wasn't a big concern for me. The bike definitely feels stiff. Like it extends, um, as you're pedaling it, but when you're racing downhill, you're, you're never just pedaling along. You're either sprinting as hard as you can, or you're not pedaling. So it, it, the bike becoming stiff under pedaling, it wasn't like you're losing traction or, um, it was a negative feeling, um, associated with it. You didn't really think about it much, I, I would say. Um, and then like, because of a rearward first half of the axle path and that chain tension, um, growing because the rear axle and bottom bracket are coming further apart. It was delivering, um, pedal kick pretty quickly in the first half of the travel, but my O chain took care of all that. Like I didn't feel any pedal kick. I, I wouldn't have any pedal kick until 170 mil travel on my bike. And there's a lot of things going on at 170 mil travel that I don't know if you can pick apart a few degrees of pedal kick. So it felt like a good strategy for me. Um, and as you said, like I can understand totally why a production bike wouldn't want to be designed with an O chain in mind because it's not something for the everyday rider or like a lot of downhill bikes are also used as rental bikes at a bike park or, um, for people that just go to the bike park on the weekend, not for racing and an O chain as many benefits as it has, it also requires maintenance. Um, it adds some complexity. It fits differently with different chain guides. Um, so there is some challenges with it. Um, but for racing, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I, I can totally understand why if, if I were making a production bike, I wouldn't want to spec that yet. I think it has come a long way. I'm on the, I think the fifth version of the O chain now, and it's way better than the ones that we tried two and a half years ago when they first came out with it. And I think there's even more coming in, in the realm of what the O chain does that will improve bikes in the future. Um, I don't know all the details of it, but I think that like we'll have some cool opportunities to design in ways like I did my bike, um, in years. To come. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And like you sort of said, I think saying that pedaling performance in a DH race bike just isn't that big a consideration and you're sort of okay making some comparatively minor sacrifices there in trade-off for the traits you wanted elsewhere and you know pretty happy to live with that very much checks out I, I mean the sort of pivot height change and designing around the o chains maybe the biggest high level uh change to that iteration of the bike as compared to the first couple but anything else notable did you tweak geometry much or do anything else all that different as compared to the first two 
Um, I, I really didn't. I was pretty happy with the geometry that I chose and I chose it based on a lot of other bikes that I had test ridden. Um, either bikes that I'd raced over the years or test rode a bunch of bikes leading into designing these two. So my geometry really didn't change. I was pretty happy with, with what I went with. Um, I did start running a 40 mil stem. So I liked the feeling of the handling of that, like putting my bar further behind the front axle. Um, and when I went to that, I needed to put my reach five mil longer to get the reach I was looking for. So I think my, um, my first prototypes were 475 reach and then I went to 480. Um, but that was really the, the only notable change. Yeah, pretty minor tweaks then and kind of cool that you were able to sort of figure out what you wanted and just had it pretty much there from right out of the gate. Downhill geometry isn't anything crazy. Like if you look at a lot of the downhill bikes, I mean, head angle, um, chain stay length, bottom bracket height are like the main things that you're looking at. And most bikes are pretty, pretty close. It's if, if you did something crazy, you, you probably would be off the mark. So that wasn't really hard to hit. Totally. And even like what's, it's kind of interesting that even compared to downhill bikes of quite a while ago, you know, 10 years or so, like the reaches have gotten longer, but that's actually kind of about the only number that's changed all that much for the most part. Like it's been trail bikes have gone through this crazy revolution in geometry and downhill bikes have been comparatively stable and kind of had it figured out a lot sooner. So yeah, that, that makes sense too. Um, so, I mean, that kind of brings us to the start of the world cup season. And unfortunately you kicked things off hurt having broken your finger and not the smoothest start to things, but tell us a little bit about what happened there and kind of how that factored into the start of your season. Yeah, it was about four weeks before the first world cup. I was doing the downhill Southeast series here in the Southeast. Um, me and my family put those races on. So it's always cool to use them as a preseason kind of warm up race. That's my idea for starting in the first place was, um, just to get some bike time on race courses and do preseason stuff, um, work out the kinks before the world cups. So I was doing the first one over at the trials training center in Chattanooga and I just clipped my finger on a tree and broke my pinky. Um, it was cold that morning and I like, I rode for like 30 seconds after that without noticing that I did it. And when I stopped, my finger was pointed sideways and I was like, "Uh Oh, this, this doesn't look good, but like, it doesn't hurt. So what's going on? I like tried to pull it straight. I was, yeah, it, it was pretty badly broken, um, between my knuckle and like my, my thing, like my knuckle on my fist and my finger knuckle, like that first bone. Um, so I ended up like, Luckily, I have a friend, uh, my buddy Jack Berg, who has done a bunch of video stuff with me in the past, and he does a lot of video stuff for the motocross industry. He, his dad is a, is a really well-known surgeon in Tallahassee. And I called him and he didn't even ask his dad. He just said, yeah, come to my house and my dad will do it on Monday. So I went down to his house and, um, stayed over at his place and went to his dad, went with his dad to work the next day and he, um, fixed my finger. So he, uh, put two metal pins in it and 
he's worked on a lot of the motocross riders before. So he understands that I need to race and he cut the pins. Like normally the pins would be sticking out of your finger pretty far so that they could then pull them out in a couple weeks when it was time to get rid of them. But he, he cut them. So they were under the skin, which made it so that I could wear a glove and race. And the, they were like penny nails that were like holding my finger together. So that was not an ideal, um, lead in, I guess a month out from, from Lords, but I let it rest for until the week of and did some runs on the bike and I could hold on enough, um, to at least give it a try. So I went there, didn't let it hold me back and, um, gave it my best shot. I definitely had a hard time holding on the last minute of the track, which I, I faded in my splits and ended up missing it by like 1.2 seconds, um, off of the cut for quality. So it, it, it was disappointing, but I went and gave it my best shot. And, um, yeah, I was, I had a, I had a good excuse, I guess, but I hate having excuses. I just much rather go there with uh, smooth sailing, I guess, as anyone would. In one of the framework videos, I think after Lenzerheid, you sort of mentioned that like it sort of feels easier to have things not go well when it's just you didn't put down a great run that day, and like having it sort of feel like it's more on you and just something that's more within your control feels easier to handle mentally than having just external stuff that's throwing you off and things that feel less controlled. Was that a fair sort of summary of that thought? Yeah. And uh, I guess anybody that competes, like there's a lot of emotion that goes into the race and you put a lot of time and effort into it and it's your experience. Like I've learned that it's not like I, there's a lot of people racing there and they have problems of their own. And whether you got first or last doesn't really matter that much to anybody else like it does to you. So going there and putting that effort in when I've had some races that I just made mistakes. Um, like I, I totally can accept that I didn't perform and like, this is the result of that. Like, I think racing is really good for teaching you that you get out what you put in and it's a direct feedback loop of how you performed is the result that you get. And you learn a lot from doing that. So the races where I just didn't ride well, it was easy to accept. Having the broken finger or a couple of mechanicals that I had through the season, it was like, man, I did everything right. And it's like knowing what I knew, I couldn't change. I wouldn't change what happened. It just like didn't go my way. Those were, I don't know, those are like super frustrating. I would after the race be uh, a lot more bummed out than the ones where you just don't perform. I can, I can see that. And like this, the sort of, it's more frustrating having something, something just go wrong, like a flat or whatever. And then, you know, that mental thing is a big part of the game and just it's a different way of having things not go right and easier to handle it. But I guess sort of fortunately for you there, as far as the schedule went, there was a kind of lengthy gap after that first race at Lords, and you had some time to get the finger back in shape and spend some time on the bike and kind of how did that, once you started getting healthy and really being able to get after it 
more fully on the bike. How was that period of testing and what were you learning about the bike and taking away from what you changed and getting that mid pivot bike set up and all that? Yeah, it was, it was pretty convenient to have, I think we had nine weeks between Lords and Fort William. Um, so my mechanic Ancho came over and we spent a bunch of time riding and testing together here in the U S he's pretty experienced with using data acquisition as well. So we got some, some potentiometers on the bike and we, we had two systems actually. We used the motion instruments and the BYB and, um, ended up using more of the BYB because of the, the interface with their software was, it gave us more information that was useful. Um, so with that, we could really dial in the setup, um, made some suspension changes, small, but um, just felt like we were getting to a good spot where like we had a really good base and um, ready to ready to take on the summer. So it was a productive couple of weeks and got my, like, I don't feel like I lost a ton of strength, but just like that riding, um, when you ride every day, you got calluses on your hands and you're, you're tough to go and, and ride. And when you don't, you've got to build that back up. So it took a little bit, but, um, it was nice to have that break to, to get ready for the, the summer. And, and once the summer hit, it was busy. So it was, um, it was as timed as well as it could, I guess. Yeah. And at that juncture, how were you feeling about the bike? And I can imagine that both just because you didn't have the time to really do too much more maybe, and also just wanting to have something that you're feeling comfortable on and familiar with, you presumably weren't trying to make a ton of wild changes to it anyway, but was that feeling pretty much where you wanted it? Were you at that stage thinking, oh, well, wish I could tweak this out of the other kind of what were things like at that stage? Honestly, the bike felt awesome. Um, the bike was never, we always joked like we'd look at the data and say, computer says bike's good enough, ride it faster. It was, it was like, it, it was, it was not holding me back. Um, we started to get into, I guess in May, we noticed we cracked some frames and that was like about the time where we had hundreds of runs on them and we were starting to see some stress cracks come in. So that was more of the concern and the headache was okay now it's time that we've we've isolated some clear problems how are we going to fix them um and a lot of it was construction um, the type of gussets that we were using and the type of tubes we were using so the bike i would say was working like uh, riding it was great um figuring out how to make it strong enough and also in a way that was efficient to make. Um, that was the challenge that we ended up with. Yeah. And that's kind of that last bit of refinement that we were talking about that can end up being a whole lot more than just the last little bit. And, uh, if I've got it right, you, the kind of the two things that really changed there where you added some gussets around the head tube and t sort of, made some changes to those, the ones that were already there on the underside of the, at least the down tube, you can certainly fill me in better than this. And then, um, you kind of ended up at some point having to change 
the tube that you were using for the upright just due to material availability and that interim replacement wasn't quite up to snuff. Is that about right? Yeah. So to, to kind of walk through it, the first issue that we saw was on the, on the high pivot prototype, my, I, my little brother was riding that, um, after I decided to go to this mid pivot design and he cracked the chain stays on it. I ride, um, downhill tracks all the time, rough stuff to practice and, um, test my bike for what world cups are. He rides a lot more bike park and jump trails. And funny enough, like riding on rough downhill tracks is harder on your tires and suspension and wheels and riding on like flow trails, jump trails, stuff with, um, like really high G force berms is way harder on chassis. So he broke the chainstay on his bike and I hadn't had any issues and, um, not to be cocky, but I ride a lot faster than he does. So I was surprised that that happened, but looking back at like, okay, one of the worst things for your bike is to do a whip and not bring it back and land sideways. So once we noticed that we changed, luckily we had already improved from that high pivot, the first prototype mule. Um, when we went to the mid pivot that I was riding, the interface between the main pivot yoke and the chainstay. So it was a one piece yoke that fifth axis made us, um, at their shop in San Diego. And it had more of an overlap with the chainstay. So we already had a better design there from what we noticed that he broke. Um, then the next issue we were seeing was some cracking around the head tube, top tube and down tube junction. Um, we didn't have any side plate gussets on the first one. It was just like a thumbnail gusset on the top of the top tube and the bottom of the down tube. And underneath the top tube, we started to see some stress cracks. And I noticed it on um, my little brother's bike again, once like he cracked it, we looked everywhere and we saw that. And then on one of mine, I noticed it. Um, I had let another local kid here race the first prototype, which was cool because it got way more use than I intended it to. It was supposed to just be a test mule and it ended up getting ridden all season. But we noticed that his was cracking too. So it was like at least consistent that they were all cracked underneath the top of the top tube where it meets the head tube. So we decided to go for a side plate gusset, which is something you see on a lot of downhill bikes, um, particularly from 10 to 20 years ago, maybe with a skull cut out of the, the side of it. <laughs> but um, we went for that and that helped a ton. Um, and down the road, we noticed that we still had an issue with them cracking around the weld of the thumbnail gusset that was welded across the tube. So um, it's not as clear on aluminum what the best way to do it is, but on steel, you wouldn't weld across the tube with a gusset like that to eliminate some stress risers there and make it like more of a smooth transition in tube thickness. So we 
so we, we went away from that. And then also we were using um, like water bottle bolt hole cable guides that like strip, they, they just screwed into the same thing as like the rivet for a water bottle cage. And it was right. The first one was right around where the thumbnail gusset was on the top of the down tube. So this was like creating some stress all in one place. And we realized that that might not be the best way to do it. So we changed the gussets as well, the thumbnail gussets and did not weld them across, cut a bigger oval out of them and made them a lot longer. So it was just, like I said, a smoother transition. And then we went back to the zip tie cable guides, which also for racing, I think is better. It's just, they work, they don't come loose. Your cables are tight on there. You can't make them too tight. Um, and we didn't have the, the rivet in the tube around a gusset area. So in the end, it was a few iterations to get that right. And I'm sure a big bike company could laugh at me and say that they know, would have known that. But for me, it was very much trial and error. And it was nice to take those steps and now learn. And now I have the experience to know how to do that part in the future. The last piece that was challenging was the upright tube, which on my design, I wouldn't call it the seat tube because we welded the seat tube onto it for a downhill bike, but it would be essentially what the seat tube area would be for another bike. And on a four bar design like mine, you have basically the, the main pivot for the rocker link and then the, the lower main pivot going, pulling in opposite directions. So the thing is basically trying to rip itself apart. And we, on the first few frames, used a tube that Frank had in his shop that was used. I, I think he said it was from a spooky project X, like a 1999 downhill bike that he made. Um, and he said, yeah, I've got this square tubing. That's like super thick 2.4 wall thickness. Um, like this will be perfect. So we, I was like, okay, cool. Like I, leaned on Frank big time for the initial tubing selection based on his experience and it worked. Um, and the only reason that we changed it when we updated those gussets, as I described, we were making more frames is because he didn't have any. And he was like, Hey, I only have enough to make like three more frames. So I was like, okay, well let's find a solution before we absolutely run out of it. So, we found a hydroform tube that um, was off the shelf. Like an, another tough thing is like to find a tube that you can actually just buy. Like it's easy, like big bank companies will have um, proprietary tube, like formed tubes that they have tooling for to make specifically for their bike. And to do that takes months. Like if I wanted a tube, it would have been eight months to get one. So I was looking for things as I was testing, like to get the feel that I wanted out of the bike, things that would hold up and that I could buy and gave me the feel that I wanted. So we went for that hydroform tube, which was, there was a lot less material there, but um, on the computer, it looked like it was going to work. And we quickly learned that it wasn't, it was too thin and it was too thin of a wall thickness and diameter. So that 
presented a problem. And um, luckily, we had a couple more. Like I didn't make all of the frames out of the tubing that Frank had, and um, and was stuck with none. We say I was like, okay, let's keep a couple on ice until we we might actually need them. And um, at Snowshoe, I broke all of the ones that we made with the hydroforming tube. I think it was four frames that we made. And in my race run, raced on the least broken of them all. Luckily, it was muddy and there wasn't as high as speeds. I think that was a huge savior for us that weekend. Um, and I was able to get through the race. And on the way to Mount St. Anne, stopped at Frank's shop to get one that he welded with the original tube. So we had one for the remainder of the season with the square tube. All the while was trying to find a solution knowing that we didn't have access to that tube anymore. Like this was just buying us some time to get through these last races. We went for a round tube that had um, a similar wall thickness to this, to the rectangular tube and was off the shelf, something that we could buy. So I got um, for the U S open, which was up in Vermont, only an hour from Frank's shop. He had um, a whole batch of frames ready for us to test this off season, which was solving all the problems that we had and um, have ridden these now for the entire off season. And my brother's been doing a ton of test test runs for me. And the latest version has been holding up um, not only with us, but I've got a bunch of local kids that are test pilots for me and have been, I have no instructions other than to record how many runs they do and treat it like it's theirs and put whatever parts they have on it and um, report back any issues. And so far these have been holding up. So um, the real world testing has been going well. And we, I think at the moment have um, fixed a lot of the issues that we, that we had with construction this season. Yeah. And somewhere in one of the videos you mentioned, I think the current one that, you and your brother have been riding has got more than 500 laps on it at this point and still holding up. So that seems promising. And, um, one of the other things that I think was kind of interesting about this latest iteration of the frame that you mentioned is, uh, kind of in keeping with what you said about just wanting to keep things simple and use off the shelf stuff where you can, you're now using just transition spire pivot hardware to kind of have all that nailed down too. And I think, you mentioned having some issues with things like uh, bearing retention on a couple of the early frames and just decided to go to this off-the-shelf deal, just keep it simple and had something that was proven to work. Is that about right? Yeah. So on that first mid-pivot bike that I raced, the first World Cup on, we designed it to use the entire hardware set except for the rocker pivot, which is a little bit different on my bike. Um, that was the only bolt that was different as the transition spire and transition was cool enough to like, I sent Lars an email and asked if I could buy like 40 sets of hardware and he sold it to me at cost, which was sweet. It was like, I think I bought it straight from the factory that they bought it from. So that was really nice of him. Um, and I just thought that of all the bikes using my design, they had a really good hardware system and like they already took the time to think about it. So why not just, um, use something that works and yeah, I've been using that all season. Um, like on that frame that my brother did 500 runs on, um, it had all the original bearings too. And we wrote it at Windrock, which is primarily muddy, 
Um, it was actually dusty the first two months that we did the testing, like September and October were really dry and then muddy every day and power washing the bike. And the bearings were good. Like they were all rideable. I've had a lot of production bikes that wouldn't have lasted a quarter of that time with the bearings that they have. Um, so I was happy with that. Um, they weren't by any means brand new, but they were all usable. So, um, yeah, that was cool. I think I'm going to continue with that. The only change that I'm looking at making for this season would be, um, the main pivot bearing is specialty size. It's like 10 mil wide by 30 mil OD 17 ID. And the 30 mil OD is like proprietary for bike stuff where if you went to a 35, it's a much more common bearing to find. So I can, in my main pivot, just make the ID a little bigger. And that'd be the only difference. Everything fits together. And then I could go to the bearing store down the road and buy it. So I might do that change. But other than that, I've been really impressed with the, the bearings that transition shows. Right on. And just super interesting kind of hearing all of these little details and how the final bits of refinement go. Cause it's sort of something that with most bikes happens behind closed doors within company's whole program and we just don't get to hear about it and so it's it's neat kind of learning about how that all looks in the real world and appreciate that speaking of kind of updates and refinements though you've also been showing off a new carbon fiber rear end for it so tell us about that what's the thinking behind it and how's that going yeah that was um something that i was thinking about I guess since the first couple prototypes, um, I don't, I, I haven't ever fabricated a bike or welded a bike together. So I don't know a lot about it, um, hands on, but I watch the, the way that Frank does it. Um, some of the other, I've talked to other people that, that build butt frames as well. And, and I pay close attention to like the challenges that, that we're having with our frame and, Alignment, um, alignment's a, a tough one. Our bike's not by design isn't, isn't too challenging with alignment. Like we don't have a lot of links and all the pivots are fairly far apart from each other, which I think is a huge benefit when making a homemade bike. Um, relatively, if it's the same percentage of tolerance, it's going to be way more accurate to the bike that you designed than one that has shorter links because those in relation to each other, if they're a little bit off their desired pivot location is going to make much more of a difference. So our design wasn't hard as far as construction goes, but the challenges that we had nonetheless were with the alignment of some crucial things like your brake mount um, the chain guide spacing and then the, getting the chain stay and seat stay to fit together at the chain stay pivot. Um, and then at the link with two spacers on each side of the bearing, the clevis fitting over each, the chain stay and the seat stay. Sometimes it was a challenge to kind of wrestle that thing together. Um, and I think that's just like the nature of, of working with a homemade aluminum bike. Um, you have to weld it and there's going to be some, some movement 
of the parts when they're heated and cooled. And then it goes to heat treat where the same thing's going to happen. Um, and I guess by the end we were getting like anyone would in manufacturing, you, you can estimate how much this stuff is going to move. Um, but we're still seeing some inconsistencies from one to the next. Um, and the idea to make it out of carbon fiber was that everything there would be perfectly aligned. Um, I even had some issues with some of the bikes, like aligning the brake mount is so important because it needs to be parallel and the plane needs to be perfectly um, aligned with your rotor. Or we were having sometimes when the brake would get hot, it would touch the brake pad and um, it would kind of reset your brakes. So you go to pull it the next time and come in further than you expected. Um, and that was a huge, as a, as a downhill rider, like you're relying on the feel of that braking point, like as a race car driver would on their brake pedal. And if that's changing a, just a fraction of a hair that can throw off your confidence in your braking point. So I was chasing that a lot this season and we got the frames to be a lot better, but, um, the idea to make it out of carbon was to completely solve all of those construction issues. And then the idea that of making the piece lighter as well can have a big impact on how your suspension feels. So we were shooting in the computer simulation for like, I guess almost a two pound weight saving off of the chain stay and seat stay. Um, and in reality, it, it was pretty close. It was 800 grams. And every all the inertia of the, those moving pieces, when you go from compression to rebound, can have a lot more free feel in your suspension. Um, like if you can have a better ratio of unsuspended mass, which is all the moving parts to the suspended mass, um, the bike suspension system should work better. So making this carbon mirror triangle had a lot of theoretical advantages that made sense. Um, the big issue with carbon fiber is the, the upfront expense of all the tooling required to make parts. Um, and the way that I could justify that was to design it in a way like my bike was always already running boost spacing at my hub, which is the same as a trail bike would run. Um, several other downhill bikes are doing that as well. And originally I just wanted to do it to, I hate having so many different standards. Um, but I could justify my carbon rear triangle being able to be used on an enduro bike or a trail bike in the future coming from the same chain stay and seat stay mold. Um, and then if I wanted to change the chain stay length, I'm locked in at the axle with a SRAM UDH. Um, and I, I didn't want to invite having more flip chips and opportunities to have more headaches. So I like the idea of just locking in one axle position. And then if I wanted to change, um, say make another frame size, I could move my main pivot on my front triangle to accomplish that. So making this carbon fiber rear triangle, I could justify the expense in that I could use the, the same piece on several frame sizes and several model bikes that I dream of making in the future. 
with one set of tooling. So it kind of amortizes that cost and makes it more of a reasonable thing for me to do. Um, so that was the idea behind it. Sure. That all checks out. Taking a bunch of unsprung weight off the back would help with suspension performance. It stands to reason. And, uh, yeah, being able to spread that around and the idea of kind of moving the main pivot locations around to change, change stay length rather than using different parts. There are plenty of companies doing that and makes good sense for all the reasons you just laid out. But I'm curious about kind of the design of that and figuring out carbon layup and all the rest. Obviously, that's kind of a whole new realm of design and engineering that you hadn't had to delve into before making the frame out of aluminum. And how did you get all that stuff worked out? So I was really fortunate to have my friend Dan Roberts, who is an engineer. He was an engineer for Scott when I raced for Scott and now is a freelance engineer and works primarily with RAW. And they have a very similar thinking to me with their bike designs. Um, but he had a lot of experience doing some of the cross-country race bikes for Scott. Those were, I think the scale was his project, which was their hardtail. And at the time was, I think, one of the lightest or the lightest hardtail cross-country race bike available. Um, and he worked closely with the factory on the design of that frame. So to take a step back, I had the idea to do this carbon rear triangle. And I asked my friend Troyden, who is making the Crestline bikes, like, how do you go about just making these things out of carbon fiber? He was doing a similar project to me with making prototype downhill bike. He's also making an e-bike and he was going straight for carbon. Um, whereas I was going the aluminum route with prototyping and he explained some of the process in the factory that he was using and introduced me to them. And I got in touch and they could do the design for my rear triangle in house from one of their engineers at the factory. And my initial ask was make one the same as my aluminum one and because I know this one works and we'll go from there. So when they sent that first 3D model over, I showed it to a few friends of mine, Ben Arnett, who designed my frame, um, Dan, and a couple other engineers that I knew. And Dan came back with a lot of feedback with his experience working with carbon fiber, mainly that I was choosing to copy the aluminum version that I already had. And I only made that aluminum version the way that I did because of the tubing that Frank suggested. Again, tubing from 1999 Project X. So why are we copying that when we have the freedom to make this carbon fiber 3D any shape that we want? So he stepped in and he didn't design it, but he worked with the designer from their factory with some really good criteria of how they could improve the chainstay and seat stay design and made sure that I was getting the best part that I wanted. Um, so the 3D shape was locked in with Dan's help. Then with the layup, we sent them an aluminum full frame and a few rear ends and they tested them in their lab to define the stiffness and then came back with a report that we could use to create the criteria for the stiffness that we wanted from the carbon one. Um, they were also nice enough to share some of the other downhill bikes that they're making stiffness ratings from their lab. So we could look as, and 
I'll just say some of them I've raced before and know how they feel. And we could use that info to target the stiffness for this. They wouldn't tell us a lot about the actual layup. Um, we, we could definitely know like what fibers they were using, um, and some of their process, but without visiting the factory and, and us being a first time customer ordering a very small quantity of stuff, they weren't going to give away too many secrets. Um, so I, I can't say we knew exactly the details of the layup, each pattern and process, but we knew what the target stiffness was and they delivered something that was within that. Cool. And that's really interesting that sort of you're using the factories design and engineering resources to kind of figure some of that stuff out because, you know, I worked as a mechanical engineer for quite a while before doing this, but have essentially no experience working with carbon fiber specifically. And so that's just like black art wizard to me. I, the metals I can, I can get my head around. I don't really know anything about carbon though. And so, um, but yeah, I was curious about that. That's cool. Um, and I guess speaking of the frame stiffness stuff, something that you talked a fair bit about, in some of the frameworks and in-depth videos was for you were running a version of the rocker links with a bolt-in brace for a bit with the ability to vary the frame stiffness through that and um tell us a little bit about that and what you learned from it yeah the first couple links that i had were made by cascade components and um they have a lot of experience making links they make aftermarket links for a bunch of bikes so i um I leaned on them to help design this link. The very first ones we made were a two piece design with no connection and Benton broke a lot of shock bolts with that. So then they made a three piece design with a bolt through connection. Um, really it's just more efficient to manufacture, especially if it, the connection can be keyed in. Um, you don't then have to start with such a big piece of aluminum, which is, um, less machine time, less material. Um, so we use the bolt through connection, which more so was to make it efficient to make for that, for, from their side. Um, but then I had the idea to take out the, the connection to be able to try both ways and see how it felt. And I was surprised how noticeable it was to remove the connection from the link. Felt like it allowed the, the rear end to which now knowing what I know now, the rear end was pretty stiff in aluminum. It allowed it to move more freely. And I felt like the feeling on the trail was that instead of skipping across the surface in a flat turn, it would stick the rear wheel would stick and track the ground better. So we ended up going for links that without a connection again, and with a 10 mil bolt at the shock, instead of a eight mil bolt to try to, there's some scissoring and um, was bending the eight mil bolt. So we improved that and um, noticed the bike to work a little bit better without the connection of the link. That's interesting. And we are starting to see some bikes crop up with bolt-in braces with that in mind, like the new iteration of the Comensol, for example, the has got, swappable stuff and something I've kind of been curious about in, um, in just, you know, doing my job and testing the whole range of bikes that I'm spending time on. I am kind of 
incrementally refining my sort of thoughts and preferences on frame stiffness stuff and uh am kind of coming to some of those same conclusions that uh not ultra stiff rear end definitely has some clear benefits in some situations particularly kind of just in terms of rear wheel traction and tracking the ground a little bit more nicely in certain cases so um yeah interesting to hear that you're kind of winding up in some of those same places and getting that figured out i guess along the lines of all this stuff about material selection and various iterations of the bike you've also mentioned considering trying out a steel front triangle is that something that is likely to happen what are you hoping to achieve with it what's the thought there yeah i uh I wish I could already tell you how it feels. Um, I worked with Kodak. Kodak's a really nice steel bike manufacturer from the UK. And the owner of the company, Cy Turner, came to a bunch of the races this year. And I had some awesome conversations with him about bike design and some of my ideas. And um, came to him with the idea like to try a steel front triangle. Um, I don't think steel's a great material for designs where you have a lot of CNC parts, but in tube form, steel is really awesome material. It's, um, it's five times stronger than aluminum and three times heavier. Now you can't go so thin to make it lighter or you'll have a soda can, but you can make the bike competitive weight wise for a lot more strength. Um, and it has a different feel even with the same static stiffness, it could have a different feel. Like a lot of people say that steel absorbs vibrations. Um, now there could be some other variables, like I said in the beginning, between a steel bike and an aluminum bike. There's not that many that are completely the same. But I just thought it would be cool to try it with without those variables and see how it feels. So I was hoping to have it in January. Um, it's getting made at five land in Scotland, which is where Kodak makes all their bikes. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, that steel front triangle will be here and I can ride it back to back and see if I can notice any differences in the material. It's going to be really interesting to see how that goes, because like you said, I mean, the opportunities to test what is essentially the same design in steel and aluminum are few and far between. And, uh, have been spending some time on a couple of steel full suspension bikes of late, but you know, like you similarly, not things that have an aluminum equivalent exactly. And so, um, kind of feels like some things feel different, but without more isolation of variables is also kind of hard to know. And it'll be, be neat to see what comes of that. I guess, do you have any specific things that you're hoping to accomplish or things that you specifically think that the steel, has the potential to do better apart from what you already said about just maybe stronger at a comparable weight, or is that kind of the main thing that you're interested in? Honestly, I'm, I'm just trying to go into an open mind and see how it is. It's, uh, it's hard to spend as much time thinking about these things and then also doing a portion of the design and paying for it. And then it's showing up and having an unbiased opinion when you ride it. So I try to not think of how the steel is going to feel and then confirm that when I ride it, I try to just ride it and see if I notice anything. Um, but yeah, the, the idea was just that it would be interesting. So 
we can make one for a pretty reasonable price for a front triangle. Let's throw it on and see what happens. Fair enough. Well, I guess, yeah, maybe you can leave it there then, but it'll be interesting to see what comes of that and how it feels once you start getting some time on it. So uh, looking forward to what I'm sure is going to be some videos and other stuff about that. And it'll be interesting to see. I guess I'm also just curious to hear a little bit about the outside of the bike, kind of the frameworks racing program and how things went as far as running your own team and the rest. I mean, we talked about this a fair bit last time around, but you know, obviously you've had some great help with Martin Whiteley coming on and all the rest, but um, how did that go? Was it kind of largely as expected? Any major surprises there? Things that could have gone more smoothly? I thought it went pretty well for the first season. Um, like, like with the frame, having so many knowledgeable people, friends of mine that were willing to help me was invaluable. People like Martin with the team, people like Ben or like Dan did with the frame design. Um, other people I probably shouldn't mention that work for other bike companies that gave me their feedback. So I couldn't have done it without the help. And, and I think it's, it shows like the industry is a pretty small and tight knit group and people that think that something's cool and have a relationship are willing to help out and jump on board. Um, so again, thank you to all those people. It was really cool. And yeah, the season I thought went pretty well. It had its hiccups, of course. Um, and I, don't think they were anything that I could have really predicted. Um, mainly like the, the issues were some mechanicals that we had at some races, um, with broken wheels and just in an inopportune time in qualifying runs. Um, and those were just frustrating with how much effort had gone into it. Um, and like I explained earlier, felt like they were out of my control of what like we, we did what we thought we could to prevent that, knowing that it could be a possibility. Um, I, I really liked running the team in the sense of like being in control of everything. I booked all the flights. I booked the hotels. I made the plan of what day we were going to go where. I thought we were somewhere between Bernard Kerr organization and Martin Whiteley organization, which was a, a good spot to be. We were um, small and efficient enough to move. Um and change our plans if something else came along, but also organized enough to have a plan to start with. And yeah, it was, it was cool. I, I would say it was harder than I thought at times to um, forget about all that planning and strategy of how we were going to... And when I say strategy, I mean like how to spend the budget. I had a certain amount of money to spend on the season and um, was the best return on that from a race performance and also delivering value to my sponsors so that they would do it again perspective. Um, and thinking of that strategy, just like when I designed the bike, it's hard to forget about it and have an unbiased test ride. It's hard to plan all this stuff and be the one in control of it, which I like to be, but then also clear my mind and race without any strings attached. That was something that you can't quantify. It's not tangible, but it's way harder than I expected it to be. Yeah, I would imagine that's a lot to juggle. But 
good on you for pulling it off and running it back for another year here and uh be looking forward to seeing how that goes and excited to watch along and just in case that's kind of not enough stuff that you're doing you've also just last couple of months here opened yet another bike park uh tell us a little bit about that yeah <laughs> it was it was kind of cool to do it uh, we we built the bike park at rock creek right after the season finished and it it was nice to transition from traveling all the time um the headaches of manufacturing these bikes and and all that went along with it to like okay the race season's over I'm going to go build trails for a couple months. It was a welcomed change, but like most things, I, I went into it full steam and was by the end of it, never wanted to go back to Rock Creek again because I was there for 12 hours a day for two months, which ended up turning up into three months straight. But, um, the backstory is that we opened Canuga in 2020, kind of at the perfect time when, um, the boom of, the pandemic was pushing people into outdoor activities. We opened a bike park that was completely outdoors and had no restrictions and people had time to go ride and had, um, interest in it. So the bike park at Canuga took off and was super successful in our area. There was a desire for maintained trails, um, that were easy to access and had a variety of terrain from jump lines to natural single track stuff. So to my surprise, a lot of people were willing to pay for that. I've heard people say that it's like being part of a country club for mountain biking, where if they only have so much time to ride, they're willing to give money towards the trails being perfect every time they go and that experience being better. So Canuga was super successful as a business and my partner, Dave, who is a he owns a bunch of doctor's offices and is an avid mountain biker himself. He listens to this podcast about skiing and everything that you do as well. So he had the idea to start our own bike park, whereas Canuga is we lease the land from a summer camp. So if we could start on a property of our own, we would have more control over being able to host bigger events, having more area for parking, um, and just being able to do whatever we want without asking for permission. So they found this really nice property 20 minutes down the road from Canuga that had 800 feet of vert. So it was quite a bit more Canuga's 500 and more terrain that we could use for a shuttle access bike park. Canuga, you pedal to the top. There's a climbing road and a single track climb. And at Rock Creek, we made a shuttle road. So it's a lift access downhill park. And I think a welcomed addition to Western North Carolina. Um, in the past, Luca, Chris Grice and I, we all live here in Pisgah Forest and we drive to Windrock to ride every time we need to practice. And Windrock's awesome. It's really gnarly, really steep. Um, just gnarly terrain, good practice for downhill racing. Um, but it would be cool to have a place closer that we didn't have to drive out there every time we wanted to ride. So this checked that box. And I was stoked that Dave gave me the freedom to design the layout of the park, how it would flow down to the parking lots, um, the shuttle road, 
all the logistics that went along with it, and then the trail layouts as well. And we had an awesome team. Um, all the kids that work over at Canuga jumped on board and helped to build this park. And then my girlfriend, Callie, did a lot of the trail building as well. So it was done all in-house by the same crew that we used at Canuga. And um, I was just enjoyed the the challenge of like building the whole place out and being in control of the logistics and layout of it. Um, that's interesting and fun to start with like a blank canvas of land and imagine how you're going to have a bike park that functions on a weekly basis as well as have races or other big events there and it all kind of flow and work together. Um, so it was just a fun challenge and I enjoyed it. I got to build a track for myself to practice on. It's like a, a good test track for the bike and um, for practicing for big races. So having that close to home is sweet. And um, a lot of the hard work is in the rear room mirror. So I'm stoked now to get back to framework stuff. Perfect. Well, Nico, this has been fun as always. And as we've just run down, you've got an awful lot going on. So uh, probably about time we wrap it up here and let you get back to it. But thanks again for coming on. This has been a blast and just really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hopefully talk again soon. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to help keep the show going and growing. I also want to say thanks to Nico for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.